Hello and welcome to another episode of PhD Pending, the podcast for early career humanities scholars. My name is Anna Mahler and I have a PhD in English Literature. Together we will deep dive into different aspects of PhD life and explore what it really means to do a PhD in the humanities. It has been a long break between seasons this time and that is because PhD Pending has moved headquarters from Ireland to Germany. But now we are back with a brand new season and my guests and I had so much fun recording the first episode that we went way over time and actually had enough content for two episodes. So let's dive right into part one. I'm very excited to be sitting down in person with an old friend of mine, Dr. Martin Kortz, and we'll be discussing something very special And because we've never had a science PhD on the podcast. And today we're welcoming one to show us the ins and outs of a science PhD and compare and contrast. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you? What was your project? Anything and everything you want us to know about yourself? Well, I, I started studying chemistry and then found that that was not exactly to my liking. So I switched to food chemistry. And after that, I decided to kind of sort of switch back. Mm -hmm. And I got a position for a PhD in biophysical chemistry, which is exactly as freaky as it sounds to some people, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I've spent some four and a half years there working on my PhD, which I finished about two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And last year I continued kind of sort of in the same spirit at the university. And uh, it's fun. Mostly. Most of the time. <laughs> so tell us where you're from and what university did you do your PhD at? And maybe some things that you like to do outside of research. And also, how the fuck do we know each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, we do know each other from school back in the day, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, we both went to school in Halle. I w was born here and I have been here forever basically mm -hmm. i went to university here and i did my phd here which uh, is a pretty unusual thing i would say born and bred exactly and right now we are recording in our hometown it's a wednesday evening and thank you to our patreon subscribers who sponsored our drinks for tonight Ooh. i'm having a wine you're having a beer cheers and cheers. thank you very much <laughs> mm. When it comes to outside of academia, well, anything really, anything that gets you out of the lab is pretty much welcome. So, but mm -hmm. yeah, no, the, the usual stuff. I've been playing music for what, 16 years now or so. 16 years with the same guys, I might add. And that's, that's a staple that really kept my sanity somewhat in check, I say. Mm -hmm. so. And the band is called? The band is called Sir Gary. And uh, yeah, we've been doing that for, for quite a long time and we're, we're still kicking. And, you know, after the turmoil of the past what, two and a half years or so, mm -hmm. uh, we are getting back to uh, performing life. And I'm super excited about that. And where can people find you on Spotify? And We do have an album on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Sony. Um, I mean, people could look us up on YouTube, I suppose. There's supposed to be a video which is now about 14 years old or yep, so. Yeah, it is. So... I, <laughs> Uh, I don't know how I feel about that one, but uh, Sir Gary, that is G-E-R-R-Y on Spotify or, you know, 
other major outlets. Uh, people can check us out if they like. Brilliant. Okay, and after that little plug, let's dive into some more PhD-related stuff. Mm. So you and I had a quick chat before we started recording about some of the similarities and differences. And you really wanted to start with um, funding, right? Even before going into, okay, so how do you apply the question, what do you apply to? Maybe you can tell us a small bit what that's like for the sciences and specifically for your field. Because for us, it's very much a case of you come up with your own project and then you look for a supervisor and then you look for funding. It wouldn't be typical that a funding body puts out projects, especially not in the English literature kind of field. So what is is that like for you in chemistry? Well, before I go into that, what type of, what sum of money are we talking about when you say funding, roughly? Well, so I got funding for my fees. So all my EU fees were covered. So we're talking about 18 grand over the course of three years. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to cut it in the sciences. <laughs> it's not going to cut it in the sciences. There are other fundings available and I think it come, they come out to about maybe like a thousand to a thousand two hundred net a month. And they also cover your fees and you get a bit of travel allowance. Mm, okay. But those are the very, very, very competitive ones. And maybe if you have 10 PhDs starting in the department, maybe two out of the 10 get it. Maybe only one. There were some years where nobody got it. Mm. I can see you smiling. <laughs> okay, so the, the, the very first thing that I, I think people should understand is that if you pursue a PhD in the sciences, you are working on a project that will be lab work, mm. most of it, which means you have a lot of consumables to spend. You need chemicals, which can range anywhere from peanuts to incredibly expensive substances. You need machinery, and those need repairs or extra parts, which are incredibly expensive. Uh, you need all the lab space and all that. All of that costs an absurd amount of money. And you will be spending an absurd amount of time doing that, and I mean time on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So you also need a salary, which is why you get paid. And depending on where that funding comes from, uh, that very much informs a lot of the things that are going on, including how you would apply for such a position to begin with. In my case, I really, well, I looked up several opportunities. The first thing you should look for is like the working groups. What is their expertise? What is their field of research? Does that tickle your fancy? Can you see yourself working on something in that direction for the next, I don't know, five years or so? And... I found one and I went to the to the group leader, the, the PI as we would call that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Which stands for Principal Investigator. So it's head of the project, basically. And I asked him if he had any ideas for fancy projects that we might discuss. And he told me that he did, but uh, uh, there was a lot of back and forth. And then he called me and said, Come by, we, we'll talk about it. Uh, he presented to me a rough idea of what the project would be. And I said, yeah, that sure sounds interesting. He took care of the funding. And then it went from there. There always has to be a public call for, the, for those positions. They have to be announced publicly so that everyone can apply. But usually you pick 
a work group that you think might be your thing and that you can work in comfortably, at least somewhat, for mm -hmm. quite a while. You discuss with the PI what the project might be. Mm. They handle the money. That is one one uh, opportunity. The other would be that you apply for a stipend, of course, in which case you basically pay yourself. You pay mm. your own salary, you pay for your own consumables and chemicals and all. And the institution just presents like lab space and a work environment that you can go to and use their machinery and whatnot. How often is that done when you're saying that like all the chemicals and all the material cost so much money? Like who has the money to self-fund in that way? Well, the, is, that, is that done often? Stipe, I have no idea how much money you would get for a stipend. But my understanding is that the funding is usually pretty good. There okay. are many like foundations, uh, Humboldt Foundation, for example. Okay, so it's kind of like an projects, external right? funding body exactly. situation. Okay. I think you would have to propose a project to them. Mm. That sounds reasonable. So you need to meet your PI and work on the details of the project anyway. But in this case, you need to work on the details of the project much more because you have to present that to this foundation or organization that will fund you. And then you get X amount of money for X amount of time. And you kind of spend that how you see fit, more or less. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. But in that case, you get a lot of different obligations, different things that you have to take care of, hmm. um, as opposed to when you're employed by the university, hmm. which was my case. Um, and we'll get into that later on, on different topics as well, mm -hmm. I suppose. But it always starts with talking to a PI that you think might be, that there might be a work relationship possible there. And then roughly figuring out what the project will be. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, they will handle the, the funding. Okay. So it's like you have some quote unquote, creative freedom to design your own project, but most of the time you go into an existing work group. Yes. Okay. Yes. And there's like already some kind of project going and then your PhD relates to that overall umbrella project. Well, it's not necessarily an umbrella project. It might more be a like a branch of research, for example. The right. official title of the working group where I uh, did my PhD is Complex Self-Organizing Systems. And that can mean a crap ton of different things. Mm. Um, it's it's just, me. <laughs> and so... Uh, a complex self-organizing system. <laughs> you are, in fact. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, if you're up for science talk, you in fact are. Um, but this, this group deals with a lot of things from synthetic polymers to ionic liquids, which is super fancy stuff, to proteins and all branches. And uh, it was really that this project is the mind child of my principal investigator. And he developed a framework of what he thought might be an interesting pursuit. But actually, there's a lot of creative freedom involved in cool. this, and mm -hmm. on my part. Yeah. I mean, because, um, well, first of all, it's science and you never know. Sometimes nature just says no. Yeah. And there's very little you can do about that. Some things just don't work. Yeah. And then you have to you know, branch out from there and find new ways. But also, there's like three or four core questions, which are so vague that nobody really knows what that means. And you have to start somewhere. You have to come up with an idea on how you would even begin to answer any of these questions. So mm. there is a lot of creative freedom. Um, and, you know, once all the paperwork and the money is settled, mm -hmm. you can get going. 
And, but you would still have to write somewhat of a like proposal with an outline and like your rough research questions that go. Well, somebody has to do that. <laughs> in Not my you. case, in my case, my PI did that and he applied to a, it's called a collaborative research center. So that is um, a great, let's call it a conglomerate mm. of a lot of projects were pooled mm -hmm. and they were evaluated and ranked. And there's budgeting, of course, always in these proposals. And then they looked at how much money they had and just cut off all the projects that, you know, were so far down the list that there would be no money. Mm. My project got accepted mm -hmm. and therefore the money was handled. And the, the whole project proposal was done by my PI well, quite a while before because he was cooking up this idea for a long time. Mm. And so there was that. I have to say, though, that in this regard, I got lucky. Mm -hmm. Because he did not make any promises whatsoever before he was certain that funding was secure. Mm. He would not hire me if he was not secure that he could sustain my contract for at least three and a half years. Because it's unrealistic that you need significantly less than that. Mm -hmm. um, that can go other ways. I know of people who get hired on a, with the contracts on a yearly basis. Mm -hmm. And if something doesn't work out, well, they're just out of luck. So that's that's the bad side of things. Mm-hmm. But really, all the, this side of things was already handled, and it often is. Interesting. You're rarely super deeply involved in developing your, your project to begin with for a PhD. You it is good. Just, you basically just look for a project that you really like that's already out there, kind of. Kind of. Right. Okay. But occasionally, you do get a bit of a hand in you know, mm. how that. Mm -hmm. But then again... Back to creative freedom. You know, you can propose anything and be funded for anything. And if it goes absolutely sideways and ends somewhere else, so be it. Right. Well, that puts my two years off working on a PhD proposal to shame anyways. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, working on a proposal is no joke. I've mm -hmm. been involved in that uh, in a different scenario. It's That's no joke. Mm. But it's usually not something that you have to do. Right. Okay. So you got that done, you got accepted, and then you signed a contract with the university, and then yeah. you rocked up to the lab and put on your goggles, and then... Lab coat. Lab coat, coat is more important than goggles. <laughs> and... <coughs> Excuse me. And then what? So you... The contract then is... For you was for on like a three-year basis? Is I it? did get yearly contracts. Okay. But I had funding secured for four years i think right okay so, and then the extra half year that i needed for you know wrapping up and all that there were ways uh that my boss took care of um but you know i had funding secured for at least that period mm -hmm. and then contract renewal was just a formality and so the normal usual length of the program would be about four years like generally in your yeah. field it is relatively rare that you get done with that in significantly less time uh-huh it is also fortunately rare that you need significantly more i mean i do know at least two people who took about seven years for different reasons mm. um that's not a good sign mm -hmm. but Usually I'd say you need somewhere between three and five years-ish. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, because obviously with a literature PhD, I sit down at my desk, I have my books, I do my research and I write. Mm. I feel like from what I know from your work is that it's way more actually like based in practical 
research, like in experiments and all of that. So if you, if, if you could look back at your PhD and like break it down into how much of your time did you spend actively like practical, practically researching? And then how much time do you spend with like books in the library researching and writing stuff up? Well, that depends on whether evaluating all the data that you collected as part of the practical or part of the literature and research and sitting down work, because that is mm. a massive part. So I would count that towards the practical aspect. Okay. And if we assume that, then practical to research is probably something like 70-30. Oh, wow. Okay. So about... I wanted to break that down really quickly into how many months that is, but we're just going to let that slide because my well, brain been, doesn't work. It's been four, four and a half years, roughly 70, 30. Yeah. So I, I, I did spend a good three years and then some in the lab. Yeah. Okay. So what would a typical day look like for you? So you go into work in the morning, you put on your lab coat and then what? Well, ideally, you already have an idea of how the experiment is supposed to be set up mm -hmm. because you need to prepare samples. Yeah. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know a lot of different numbers that are important. Like how big does the volume have to be? How much do you have to weigh? Blah, 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 blah. And you prepare samples and that alone can, depending on the samples, sometimes take an hour or two. Mm -hmm. And then you would fire up the machines, which would hopefully go quickly mm -hmm. and you set up experiments. And then usually you can just, press play and you have an idea of that's going to take 10 minutes then you come back and you you repeat that just and you run experiment after experiment after experiment for hours and then after you have like your series of experiments done know, five hours or so mm -hmm. you take all the data you got you fiddle around with it to see if that was worthwhile <laughs> and then you will realize that you've been there for nine hours and it's probably kind of time to go home <laughs> that that would be a typical lab work day, yes. But you already have like kind of prepped out or mapped out where you want to go that day in terms of like going into that lab day, you know, okay, so here's my list of like the, the experiments that I need to run. This is kind of like the outcome that I want. <laughs> do you have like, do you have like, and like, an hypothesis or like a thesis going into it in terms of like it can be proven that or it can be argued that sometimes then... yeah that is that is usually how you come up with the experiment in the first place as i said in the beginning you know there's a lot of creative freedom going from the proposal for your project that got accepted right mm. and you keep in mind those core questions that you put in there mm. that somebody was interested in enough to give you money for it yeah right? And you go, okay, like this is a, a massive overarching question. And yeah. you, you break that down into what does that mean? How does this particular aspect work? Mm -hmm. And then you need to come up with a strategy to even begin to understand how you can answer such a question. I don't yeah. know, like, let's say the overarching question is, what does this material do if I fire a laser into it? Mm. Well, it's kind of easy. You put up this material and you fire a laser into it, right? <laughs> But then, yes. then you know, your question is, well, does that relate to this or that phenomenon? Can it be improved? Like whatever effect we're looking at, hmm. um, how would you go about that? And that is a lot of what goes into designing your experiments. You have like rather specific questions to, s and then see if you can design a way to 
to find them. So I, I worked with proteins that self-assemble on, on water surfaces. It's actually kind of kind of creepy stuff, but it's really cool. Um, and when you when you poke them more stress the water in some way they form interesting shapes in in 3d actually you we know that mm -hmm. the question is can you see these shapes can you can you take a picture of that can you photograph that mm -hmm. turns out you can like are we talking a molecular basis well, it's or not like it's not quite molecular resolution but it's very close so it's and tiny it is very tiny 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 stuff. okay i took images of that that are one by one micrometer large and Jesus. Uh, and uh, you know you can see the difference of, of a couple hundred nanometers here and there and so okay we know this exists i do want such a picture because i do want to know what it looks like how do i get one hmm. right and then you design your experiment from that and you run that and hmm. then you look at the pictures and go well that's bullshit or oh it actually looks kind of cool okay let's see what we can learn from this picture and then you look at this picture and you see something interesting and then you go, oh, maybe we should repeat that experiment because I want to see this specific mm -hmm. aspect. How do I refine the methods to get a closer look? So it's like a trial and error exactly. kind of situation. And okay. then, you know, from this, okay, how do I get to see that in more detail? Well, that informs your next lab day on what your experiments should look like. And so you hop basically from one part to the other it kind of snowballs then exactly. as it goes along okay exactly. and would you have done like initial like book research quote-unquote book research to like find your initial experiment yes and like have. to know about the framework okay i need to put this protein there onto that surface in that machine kind of is there a difference between the two <laughs> I don't know. Is that? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not quite sure I, I got that question right. Then, So um, you absolutely have to start with literary research. Like yeah. you need to know what is, you need to know as much as you can that is already established. Yeah. Because for one, you want to avoid running like experiments for five months only mm. to find out that, you know, this stuff has been published in 1970 or something. Yeah. And you could have just looked that up in a half an hour. Um <laughs> <laughs> so that's that that would be very unfortunate yeah and um i have experience with that but on the other hand of course you you want to know as much as is already established about whatever it is you're working with you know the, the protein and the methodology so that you know you the more information you have the the more refined your approach can be Right. And that's an amazing lead in into something that we've discussed before, not just before recording today, but even like in, in other settings about literature reviews and like how much actual research do you put into your project and how much of that written research and that review of existing literature and existing research goes into the final project because it is a big deal in the humanities. You have to tie everything back to what existed before in terms of this is the hypothesis that I want to prove. This is my argument. Um, this is what's been done before. This is how it differs, how my idea differs from what's, what's been done before. And here's what I found in the literature to prove my argument or to disprove it. And here, like, just to really show that, you know, what's that saying? You're standing on the shoulders of giants to put like your entire kind of research into 
a certain context really so it doesn't just inform the way you approach the for me it would be a primary text if I look at a book and for you it would be like how you frame your experiment and what you do um initial information I get that but how much of that actually in written form goes into your PhD at the end well standing on shoulders of giants that's, that's kind of a neat way <laughs> of looking at it the thing is you know you are supposed to research something new the mm-hmm. whole idea is that you do something that has not been done in that capacity or with that specific angle or yeah um you know the hook must be something new but of course you're meddling then with data that nobody knows yeah naturally and you very rarely get clear answers from your experiments the conclusions you draw are well-educated guesses okay and the better you can educate them well the more solid they appear right so what you need is established knowledge to back up the conclusions you draw from what you did. You know, your data is indisputable. That's, this is the data you collected, right? You you collect the, the spectrum and that's what it looks like. But what you do with that, what you draw out from that, what that means for the molecules and what they're doing, why well, it needs to be backed up by established and accepted science, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of research that you need to do just for yourself, right? You look at the spectrum, you have no idea what it means. So you need to educate yourself on how to interpret these things and why they look like they do so that you can actually get some information. And then when you put it out there, you better have a bunch of science behind you that says whatever you just concluded from that is solid. Right. Okay. So it's definitely, it does play a massive part. It does. Still, okay. And just for you personally, when you did that research and you found out about like the context and the framework of your experiments and all of that, would you put that in writing for yourself? Would that be a part of like, I suppose my question is about your writing process. Hmm. You have this massive part of like practical research with lab work and all of that. And would you just take notes as you went along? And then like, what would the write-up look like in terms of, okay, so here's the research that I've done to educate myself and to put into context what, you know, the outcomes of my experiments were. And these are the outcomes of my experiments because what I've heard for the grapevine is that people in the sciences don't really love writing up their results and they leave it to the last possible minute. Yep. So that is, that is not a rumor. That is a hundred percent reality. Uh, well, but the thing is, if I if I get you correctly, mm-hmm. right, um, you do have to keep track of all that because you, you might very well jump from one rabbit hole to another in a matter of months, and there's no way you keep track of all that. There's also, however, since that is the possibility, there's no real sense in starting writing your thesis kind of along the way. Okay. Because things will often change so drastically. The things that you deem relevant enough to put in there, maybe you will throw something out. Maybe you were super wrong about this set of experiments because later it turned out you made a mistake. Um, And so you have to keep that somewhere else. And the way I did it usually was put it in a a talk. 
Whether I actually gave that talk to anyone didn't matter. I ended up giving some of them mm-hmm. in like student seminars or whatever. But I do have a whole bunch of presentations for like 15, 20 minutes, short talks that I could give that I think would make sense in and of themselves, where there is a bunch of like, okay, this is the science that we know, mm-hmm. always with references. That, so, you know, this mm-hmm. is where you find that. Mm-hmm. And then you put your own research at the end and you say, therefore, I believe this means that and that. Yeah. And so so I, I made a bunch of, of uh, short talks that nobody ever got to hear. Um, and other people like write reports basically for themselves. Yeah. Or they are asked to write annual or, or I don't know, maybe every six months or so, a report to someone, some supervising body or whatever. Right. And that definitely helps. Yeah. Right? To to keep track of what what you have read already and how that might matter in the end. Hmm. It's this accountability piece, right? You kind of set a deadline or there's like an outer deadline. Mm. Oh, I need to give that talk or mm. I have to... Oh, that is definitely submit, helpful. Submit that report, you that know? That is like, definitely helpful. That is definitely helpful. And that because, is, you know, yeah. like, as you said, like putting putting so much of the data on the back burner that can really, can happen easily because oftentimes lab work is just more exciting than, you know, sitting on the on your desk and looking at colorful lines all day that makes you kind of dizzy. Um, so it is definitely tempting to just run experiments for five weeks straight. And then when you look at all the data you collected and you see like, oh my God, this is like, I don't know, 5,000 files that I have to go through now. No, right? And so it is good to have deadlines um, for yourself to just say, okay, I need to put this set of experiments in a form where I could give a talk about that and it has to be finished in four weeks. I'd be so scared to forget something. Something like what? Either like write down a number. Oh, or, that happens. Or like next thing then is like, I can't even remember what I had for dinner last night. That happens. Never mind, remember the exact parameter that I put the laser through a certain thing yeah. two weeks ago. <laughs> yep, that's why you keep a lab journal. And that's why you better learn very quickly to keep a thorough lab journal. <laughs> like the first, I don't know, 30 pages of my lab journal are a mess. I looked at that the other day and I, I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. Zero. And had I looked at that like three days after the experiments, I would have been equally as clueless. And it's really an awful feeling because, you know, this is something that you did. Someone might ask you about this. Hmm. <laughs> right <laughs> and this this is why you have to keep a thorough lab journal right and you need to write down all the intricacies that you might need to know and you are probably forgetting about things yeah. like you know okay i i put this on like 100 milliwatts microwatt power as opposed to 80 mm-hmm. and i need to remember that mm-hmm. it's nowhere else none of the files that you create on the on the on the lab computer show you what that was mm-hmm. you have to remember so would you put that in like an actual paper format? Would you have like a Word yeah, yeah, yeah. document? No, like, no, no. How I'd, does that work? I'd, like old school uh, book. Mm-hmm. Right. Like take down notes, yeah. like actual yeah. bullet points. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm. Okay. So that's how you kept track and you didn't forget anything. Yeah. It is absolutely necessary. There's, okay. There's no way around that. It's like one of those skills that you acquire after yeah. a while, I suppose. Yeah. Is it? In terms of like, how do you keep 
a lab journal that works for you. Yeah. Is it? I mean, we, we did have a lot of lab courses during studies, right? Mm-hmm. And we had to handle lab reports that would like detail the experiment that we did and, and you know, draw conclusions and all that, which right. is more like a mini paper, I would say. But it does kind of sort of prime you to keep your notes in order mm-hmm. and remember what it is that you did. Right. And you have to find a style that works. So they teach you that skill, kind of. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. yeah. They don't drum it into you in a separate seminar, but it mm-hmm. is something that you have to pick up along the way. Yeah, it's like essay writing for the humanities. How you structure an essay, how to structure your argument, all of that. Okay. And this was it for the first part of my conversation with Martin about the similarities and differences between humanities and science PhDs. In the next episode, we finish our conversation and dive deeper into how conferences work, how admin works, and what teaching is like when you do a PhD in the sciences. And we also look at how vivas are different between the disciplines. If there's anything that stood out to you that you want to chat about, head over to our Instagram and Twitter at PhDPenningPod and let us know. We'll see you again in two weeks. This episode of PhD Pending was written and produced by me, Anna Mahler. Artwork by Jerome Kelleher. Support the show and rate us five stars in your favorite podcast app. You can also subscribe to our Patreon for exclusive bonus content, or if you prefer a once-off donation, head to our Buy Me A Coffee page. The links to both are in the show notes. You can find the show on Instagram and Twitter at PhDPendingPod, or send an email to PhDPenningPod at gmail.com. Thank you.